0: Om Namo Bhagavate Sriyarana Chalaramanaya uh, Namaskaram. Um, today I've been I've been sent a question and asked to answer that in today's meeting. But question, it's it's more of a comment than a question, but it's uh, it's an important subject um to discuss. What the comment says is um Bhagavan's teaching on self-inquiry directs us to the reality by discrimination and points to the reality from the appearance. Some Advaita teachings, such as Swami Atmananda and others, go back to the t- appearance and make further inquiry. This is based on Kashmir Shaivism. I would like Michael's view on this, please. Um I, I don't know who uh, which Swami Atmananda is referred to here because there are various, there are a number of people who go by the name Atmananda. Um, but regarding Kashmir Shaivism, though Kashmir Shaivism claims to be uh, a form of a Dvaita, it is not actually a Dvaita because in Kashmir Shaivism, they do not deny the reality of the world. They take the world to be real. So long as we accept that there's more than one thing that is real, that is not a dvaita. The, the basic um, principle of a is that there's one only without a second. That means only one thing is real. Um, so Kashmir Shaivism is a form of monism. There are many different forms of monism. What d- distinguishes a uh, Advaita from all other forms of monism is other forms of monism like Kashmir Shaivism. And not only Kashmir Shaivism, there are so many different types of uh, um, idealism is a form of monism. It says everything is mental. Even um, materialism or physicalism, is a form of monism. It says everything is physical, so that physicalism is the is the most is the is the metaphysical view that is adhered to by um, probably a majority of modern philosophers and also a majority of modern scientists. They think everything is physical, but the difference between all these various different forms of monism and Advaita is. All other forms of monism say all is one, whereas Advaita says there is only one. There is no all other number one. So this is a very this is a, a, a very crucial difference. So uh, Advaita is a form of monism, but it is a form of monism, but distinct from all other forms of monism, in that other forms of monism accept. All, but say all is ultimately one. Whereas a dwaita says there is only one. There is no all. There is one only without a second. Um, regarding Kashmir Shaivism, they consider the world to be real. So when when they say that, we need to consider what is meant by real. In in um in a dwaita in philosophy in general, when we talk about what is real. or or at least from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings particularly, what is real, real means what actually exists. Whatever does not actually exist, but merely seems to exist, is unreal. So even if something seems to exist, if it doesn't actually exist, it is not real. So according to the pure, Bhagavan's teachings represent Advaita in its very purest form. In that in that the pure form of Advaita taught by Bhagavan, only one thing actually exists. Everything else is a mere appearance. Bhagavan makes this uh, clear in um, in the seventh paragraph of Nāna. He makes it clear in so many places, but just for example, in the seventh paragraph of Nāna, Bhagavan is very, very explicit. He says, Yatātamai ulladu atmas andre. That means what actually exists is only atma-swarupa. Atma-swarupa means the, the, the own form or real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. That alone, we, we as we actually are, alone are what actually exists. And then he goes on to say, the world, soul and God are karpanegal. Karpane, uh, uh, the Tamil word karpane is from the Sanskrit word kalpana, which means a fabrication, particularly a mental fabrication, a mental creation, a figment of the imagination, an illusion or illusory superimposition. So they are karpane gal in it like the silver in a shell. In a shell, we may it may seem very silver in the shell, but that shell, silver is just a... Uh, an illusory superimposition. There's no actually no silver in that shell. There's just the appearance of silver in the shell. So like like that uh, appearance of silver in a shell, the world, soul, and God are mere appearances in Atma That means they have no real existence. They they merely seem to exist. So they are not real. and then he goes on to say, these three appear simultaneously and disappear simultaneously. And then he concludes by saying Swarupa, Swarupa here means Atma our, our own real nature, what we actually are. Swarupa alone is the world. Swarupa alone is I. Swarupa alone is God. Everything is Shiva Swarupa. Uh, that is the Swarupa of Shiva, which means the same as Atma Swarupa. So when he says Swarupa alone is the world, what he means is not that uh, 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 it, It means Swarupa is what appears as the world, because the world is, Swarupa is real, the world is not real, the world is just an appearance. So it is Swarupa alone that appears as the world, it's Swarupa alone that appears as I, here I means ego or soul, and Swarupa alone is what appears as God, so what actually exists is only Atma Swarupa. Um, so, though he says everything is atma that may seem to be saying um, all is one, but it's not saying that we all actually exist. What seems to be all is actually only one. So it's not that, that there are many things that are all in essence one. There is only one thing which appears as many, but to whom... So this is why in, in, in Advaita... A that is, the basic principle of Advaita is ecum eva advetiam, there's one only without a second. But then the, the the natural objection to that is, but what about all this? We You, you say there's only one, but we see so many. So uh, how Advaita uh, uh, answers that question is, all this is just vivata. Vivarta means it is an illusory appearance. It is not real. It just seems to exist. So this is the basic principle of Advaita. Bhagavan then, Bhagavan's teachings, Bhagavan is always draw, uh, highlighting the practical implication of Advaita. So Bhagavan doesn't stop short at saying all this is an appearance. He then uh, points to, uh, to the practice by by question or calling upon us to question, to whom does all this appear? If all there cannot be an appearance without it appearing to something, so to whom does all this appear? Does it appear to our real nature? Does it appear to Atmasarupa? No, Atmasarupa is one, and so in the, because Atma sarupa is what is real in its view. There's nothing unreal, so nothing appears in the view of Atmasarupa. All this appearance is an appearance only in the view of ego. So it, that is when we rise as ego. Then only do all does all this multiplicity. Uh, Uh, seem to exist. As Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 26 of Uludanabdhu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Uh, If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this is is giving up everything. Investigating what this is means investigating what ego is. When we investigate we, we seem to be ego so long as we're looking at other things, if instead of looking at, looking at means attending to, so long as we're attending to and are aware of anything other than ourself, we who are aware of these other things, which are just an appearance, are ego. So we seem to be ego so long as we're looking at other things. If instead of looking at other things we turn our attention back to ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. That is, we seem to be ego only so long as we're aware of all this multiplicity. When we turn our attention back to see what we ourselves actually are, ego thereby, as he says in the previous verse, uh, verse 25 of Ulunabdi, he said, if sought, it takes flight. That means if ego, instead of tending to other things, if it turns its attention back on itself to see what, itself, what it actually is, who am I? In other words, if it, if it seeks its own reality by turning its attention back on itself, autumn means it will take flight, it will run away. So the, the nature of the ego as he explained in verse 25, is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself, but to uh, uh, subside and disappear or to run away by attending to itself. So if we turn our attention, instead of attending to other things, if we turn our attention back to ourselves to see who am I, to see what we actually are, Ego will thereby subside and dissolve back into its source. When ego dissolves, everything else will dissolve with it because everything, nothing exists independent of ego, as he said in the first two sentences. So the means to renounce everything, the means to give up everything, is to investigate ego. By investigating ego, we know what we actually are. By knowing what we actually are, ego is thereby eradicated. When ego is eradicated, everything is eradicated, but everything appears only in the view of ego. So why does he say, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence? Because everything seems to exist only in the view of ego. Independent of ego, nothing exists, because the oh, the only thing that actually exists is Atmasarupa. everything else is just an appearance just an appearance means it just though it seems to exist it doesn't actually exist so uh to whom does it seem to exist? It seems to exist only in the view of ego. So, only when we rise as ego does everything else seem to come into existence. When we don't rise as ego, as in sleep, nothing else exists at all. But one doesn't merely say if ego doesn't exist, other things don't appear. He says if ego doesn't exist, other things don't exist. That if they have absolutely no existence at all, even their seeming existence cannot stand independent of ego. So they don't actually exist, they only seem to exist, and they seem to exist only in the view of ego. So without ego, nothing else exists. And then, and then he says ego itself is everything, because what is ego seeing as all this multiplicity? It's seeing itself in, as all this. That is, in a dream, We see a a dream world with so many um, people and um, objects and phenomena and uh, events going on and everything. But what is it we are seeing? It is we are, that is the dreaming mind is seeing itself as all this dream. So the dream has no existence independent of the dreamer. So the, the ego is the dreamer, all this um, multiplicity that we see is a mere dream. So it has no existence independent of ego. So ego is the substance that appears as all this. Ego sees itself as all this. So all the all other things depend for their semi-existence upon the ego in whose view they seem to exist, because they seem to exist in, only in the view of the ego. They depend for their semi-existence Upon the semi existence of our self as ego, e- ego also—that is, other things—are not real because they appear and they disappear. So they have—they—they—they no, they, they are mere appearances. Um, because yeah, here, another very important principle of Advaita is that, according to Advaita, for example, in uh, this is a principle which is emphasized in. Um, Chapter 2, verse 16 of the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, uh, There is no existence of the non existent, and there is no non existent of the existence. What does that mean? That means what exists must always exist. It can never be non existent. And what does not always exist doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. That's how Bhagavan often used to express it. The same principle is also. Um, I think there are a couple of verses in Godapada's Karika, where he says the same thing in a different way. But how Bhagavan used to express it, he used to say, if something exists, it must always exist. If something doesn't always exist, it doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. Why is this? This is a very important principle in Advaita. So it's a very important principle to understand. That is... Anything that doesn't always exist is not intrinsically existent if something is not intrinsically existent, it must borrow its existence from something else um, so um, we can an analogy that is often used to illustrate this for example, supposing you have a a, a, a bowl of steamy hot rice that uh, is that heat is that um intrinsic to the rice. Is the rice intrinsically hot? No, it is not, because we also generally rice is not hot. It's only when it's heated that it becomes hot. So that uh, that that uh, steaming hot rice, it it is not the, the heat of the rice is not intrinsic to the rice. So from where does the rice derive its uh, heat? It derives it from boiling water. But but is water intrinsically hot? No, it is not, because generally water is in a cold state, but only when it is heated does it become hot. So it's not intrinsically hot. So from where does the boiling water borrow its heat? It borrows it from the pan. And is the pan intrinsically hot? No, it is not, because usually pans are cool. So the pan borrows its, its, its heat from the fire. And is the fire intrinsically hot? Yes, it is because you can't have a fire that is not hot. So fire is intrinsically hot. So anything that is not intrinsically hot must borrow its heat from something else. Heat is a property. Obviously, existence is not a property like uh, like heat because existence is something far more fundamental than a property. But we can consider existent to be analogous to a property in this respect. But anything that is not always existing is not intrinsically existent. Since it is not intrinsically existent, it must borrow its existence from something else. So all phenomena, the whole uh, world, is not intrinsically existent because sometimes it seems to exist, sometimes it doesn't seem to exist. So it, it, doesn't actually, it, it's not, it doesn't actually exist because it's not intrinsically existent. So it borrows its semi-existent from ego because it appears only in the view of ego. So all objects, all phenomena, borrow their semi-existence from the semi-existence of self as ego. But is ego intrinsically existent? No, it is not, because we appear as ego in waking and dream. We cease, uh, ego ceases to exist in sleep. So, since ego is, uh, is not permanently existing, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. So, it's a mere semi existent, it is not intrinsically existent. So, from where does ego borrow its semi existence? It borrows its semi existence from the real existence of ourself. That is what we actually are: is the pure awareness, the pure satchit, such it, the being awareness, is what shines as I am. I am means I exist, so I am is our existence, but our existence shines by its own light. So it's a it's a it's a swayam prakasa uh, uh, existence. swayam prakasa means it's self shining existence. So it is not only sat, it is also chit. So such it sh- is what shines as I am. That is what actually exists. I am is the, the one thing that we can see from our own experience. The one thing that is constant is our own existence and our awareness of our existence. In, in waking and dream, we are aware I am. Even in sleep, we're aware I am. In sleep we are not aware of anything else, but we are aware I am. We're aware of our own existence. So I am is the is the fundamental reality. That is the one thing that actually exists. That's what Bhagavan meant when he said what actually exists is only Atmasarupa. Atmasarupa means the real nature of ourself, in other words, ourself as we actually are. What we actually are is only that such it I am. That is what. That is the one thing that is intrinsically existent. So ego, which is the false awareness, I am this body, borrows its semi existence from the real existence of ourself as I am. So, um, all according to Advaita, all multiplicity appears, well, according to the pure Advaita as taught by Bhagwan, all multiplicity is a mere appearance and it appears only in the view of ego. And even ego is a false appearance. Its underlying reality is, uh, is, is what alone is real, that is such it. This is why we cannot find reality by looking outwards. We can find reality only by looking within ourselves because what is real is only I am. So it's only, though ego is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body, it has that element of reality in it, I am. That is what is real. So it's only by turning our attention back within, towards ourself alone, that we can discover the reality. This is why um, uh, in in Advaita, uh, particularly as taught by Bhagavan, we are asked to investigate only ourselves, not anything else, because everything else is a mere appearance. If you want to know what is real, what should you investigate? Should you investigate what is real or what is an appearance? There's no use in investigating an appearance if you want to know what is real. It's scientists and philosophers and others, they're constantly investigating the appearance. But that, that's why they never find what is real, because they're investigating only the appearance. If you want to find what is real, you need to investigate only the uh, reality. So um, anyone who, who says that you should investigate the appearance, it is not true Advaita, because Dwaita says, no, only one thing is real. The, dveta, the appearance is wholly unreal. So why to investigate the appearance? However, we need to even go as far away as Kashmir Shaivism. Even many classical Advaitins, when, for example, when they discuss the the Mahabhakya, Tattvamasi, what does Tattvamasi mean? It means you are that. What is that? That is referring to Brahman. That is Brahman or God. That is so long as we um so, so that is, before we come to Vedanta, we take God or Brahman to be something outside ourselves. We we think that we are something very small, and go, since we are very small, the infinite whole that is called God or Brahman must be something external to ourselves, outside ourselves. So we 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 look for God or Brahman outside ourselves. That is why in Vedanta it is said, "You are that." That is. Because we've been looking for the reality in the wrong direction, we imagine the reality is something outside ourselves because we seem to be lacking something. So, when we are lacking something, we are seeking what what we are lacking. We naturally look, we don't look in ourselves for what we are lacking, we look outside for what we are lacking. So, we seem to be lacking happiness, so we look for happiness outside we seem to be lacking knowledge so we look for knowledge outside we seem to be lacking uh, we, seem, we seem to be ignorant of god so we look for god outside ourselves we, we don't know what is the infinite all brahman we look for brahman outside ourselves the purpose of the mahabhakya is to stop us looking outside and to make us look at ourselves so when it is said you are that The purpose of that Mahabhakya and all the Mahabhakyas is to turn our attention away from looking outside back to looking within. There's no such thing as Brahman other than you. You yourself are that. But there are many classical Advaitins who, when they begin to discuss this uh, Mahavakya, Tatvamasi, they go into long explanations. And they will even argue, merely investigating the Pada, the word tvum, you, is insufficient. You need to investigate the tatpada, the, the word Tat, and some even say you also need to investigate Asi, as if there are three things, but the whole point of Tat from Asi is to say you are that, so there's, there's no Tat above than you, there's no that above than you, and there's no Asi, there's no is other than you, that is, all is only you, that is the whole point of it, but so even the classical Advaitins, often they begin to... They, that that's why Advaita philosophy over the, uh, over many hundreds of years since the time of Shankara has become extremely complex and many of the classical texts on Advaita they unnecessarily complicate things by analysing all that is unreal as Bhagavan as Bhagavan says in um, in Nana he says in the um, the 17th paragraph of Nana Bhagavan gives a very nice analogy. In, in, the, in the original question-and-answer version, the analogy Bhagavan gave is of rubbish in a barber shop. If, 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 if at the end of a day's work, what does a barber do with all the hair on the floor? He sweeps it up and throws it away. He doesn't sit down and begin to analyze how many um, how many gray hairs, how many black hairs, how many blonde hairs, how many um, uh, how many brown hairs, how, uh, um, how many uh, curly hairs, how many straight hairs, um, how many short hairs, how many long hairs. Analyzing all that rubbish, all the rubbish in the barbershop is futile, because what is to be done with that rubbish, it's all to be discarded. So there's no need to analyze rubbish that is to be thrown away. So what Bhagavan says in this paragraph, just as one who needs to gather or sweep up and throw away rubbish would derive no benefit from examining it, from analyzing it, that is, investigating or analyzing it, so one who needs to know oneself will derive no benefit by, uh, um, by uh, analyzing all the tatvas, that conceal oneself instead of collectively rejecting all of them. So instead of analyzing them, calculating how many tattvas there are and everything, all these so-called many tattvas, they're all just in appearance. Only one thing, there's only one real tattva, and that is ourself. As he says in Aksharam, like, tāne tāne tātvam, oneself alone, oneself alone is the reality. There's nothing. So all these so-called tatvas are not real. Since they are not real, since they are just an appearance, we have to discard them in order to know what is real. So why should we be analysing them? Um... So he concludes that paragraph by saying it is necessary to consider the world like a dream. So, according to Bhagavan, we need not analyze anything other than ourselves. You know, analyze, not analyze is not the correct word here. That initially, we have to analyze to in order to dis- distinguish ourselves from other things. But uh, what we need to investigate once we've recognize the distinction between ourselves and other things, we need to investigate only ourselves. So but those Advaitins who say that you need to investigate the the tumpada, the, the the meaning of the word, sorry, the, the tatpada, the meaning of the word tat, it's unnecessary. That is even shankara in his commentaries he analyzes the meaning of the word of, of these words tatvamasi what each word means but the reason he does so is because what when shankara was writing those commentaries he wasn't writing commentaries just for spiritual aspirants he was writing them to establish that advaita is the true import of vedanta so he because he had to convince others he had, to, he had to go into unnecessary, I mean, he had to go into all this uh, analysis. But if we are spiritual, so, as as Bhagavan said, the, the, another thing Shankara said in his commentary, but for Vijnani, uh, um, uh, uh, Gamya and Sanchita uh, karmas cease to exist, only Prarabda remains but as bhagavan explained in Ulutu to that answer was that was just an answer given to the question of others what Bhagavan means by others is those who are not ready to come to this path. So a lot, Bhagavan isn't saying Shankara is wrong. He's just explaining why Shankara had to say so, because others will not be satisfied. So for the sake of others, sometimes you had to give diluted teachings. Even Bhagavan often used to give diluted teachings. So a lot of uh, Shankara's Bhashyas, they were written to convince others, not so they were not for spiritual aspirants. So it, 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 um, just because Shankara analysed these things, uh, um, many uh, classical Advaitins say, yes, we have to analyse all these. But Bhagavan has, uh, in verse um, verse 32 of Ulladunapati, Bhagavan points out what the, the practical implication of this Mahavakya, Tatvamasi, what is the... What what should we, when we hear tatva masi, uh what should we, uh, what should we understand from that? What he says in this verse is, when the Vedas proclaim that is you, in other words Tattvamasi, instead of oneself being and knowing oneself by investigating what, meaning what am I, thinking I am that, not this is due to non-existence of strength, because that alone is always seated as oneself. Bhagavan puts this in a very um, compact way, but there's a lot of implication here. The implication is, when we hear you are that, why the Vedas say you are that is to turn our attention away from that, away from the idea of Brahman as something other than ourselves, Back towards ourselves. So there's no Brahman other than yourself. You yourself are Brahman. So what should we you investigate? We should investigate ourselves. Oh, if I am that, then what am I? We should in, so the, the investigation should then turn back on ourself. We should investigate only ourselves. And by investigating ourselves, we know ourselves and thereby be ourselves. Be ourselves means be as we actually are. So in order to no, uh, as Bhagavan says in, uh, in Upadesha Undia, verse 26, tanai tanai aridlam. being oneself alone is knowing oneself. So we know ourselves by just being as we actually are. What we actually are is pure awareness. By being pure awareness, we know pure awareness. But in order to know ourselves with pure awareness, we need to investigate what am I? We don't need to investigate about that, because that is nothing other than you. So if you investigate you, you're investigating that. There's no that other than you. That's the whole point of the Mahavakya, the whole point of the Mahavakya, the practical implication of Mahavakya, as Bhagavan implies in this verse, is to turn our attention back towards ourself. So instead of turning our attention back towards ourselves to see who am I, what am I, if we go on thinking, oh, I am not this body, I am that Brahman, that is, we're missing the point. That is just due to, uh, as Bhagavan says, uran in that literally means non-existence of strength. That strength there is the strength of discrimination. If I am that, then what do I need to investigate? I need to investigate only I, not that, because there's no that other than I. Um, That's the whole point of this, but many um people who who study a they lack practical experience so they um they uh, they 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 fail to recognize the practical implication of these things so they go on analyzing the barber's hair because we're all the rubbish. Everything other than I is unreal. What, is, what actually exists is only Atma Everything else is an appearance. So we need not investigate anything other than ourselves. We need to investigate ourselves alone. Bhagavan makes this very clear in, in, in so many places. For example, in verse 3 of Anma Vidde, he he, uh, he says, he begins, uh, the first two sentences are, that literally means uh without knowing oneself, if one knows whatever else, what? That implies knowing everything else without knowing ourselves, so what? So what, what what is the benefit of it? What is the what what firstly if we don't know ourselves? How, if we don't know the reality of ourselves, how can we know the reality of anything else? If we don't know the truth of ourselves, how can we know the truth of anything else? So whatever knowledge we have about other things, when we don't even know the truth of ourselves but Noah is not reliable knowledge. It's not reliable and it's not valuable. First, we the only knowledge we really need is to know who am I. And then he goes on to say, if one has um uh Arindidil, if one has known oneself, pin e uludu If one has known oneself, then what exists to know? In other words, if we it's useless to know other things without knowing ourselves. And if we know ourselves, then there's nothing else to know. Though Bhagavan says it as a uh, puts it as a question when he says what exists to know. Um, yeah, that's a rhetorical question. The clear implication is if we know ourselves, there's nothing else to know. Um, Bhagavan also in, in, um, says, uh, implies the same in Uludunapadu. For example, in verse 11 of Uludunapadu, he says, Arivurum uh, tanne Ariyadu. That means not knowing oneself who knows. Uh, lay uh, Ariyame. Knowing other things is ignorance. So whatever else we may know, if we do not know ourselves, it's all only ignorance. Um, and as he says in that verse of Amavida, if we know ourselves, there's nothing else to know. So when he says not knowing ourselves, we know other things only because we do not know ourselves. If we knew ourselves, there would be nothing else for us to know. So, knowing other things is only ignorance, andri uh, arivo, besides, is it knowledge? Uh, and then he goes on to say, arivu uh, ayaku adara tanne aria arivu ariyame arum. That means, when one knows oneself, the support for knowledge and the other, knowledge and ignorance will cease. When he says the support for knowledge in Myabha, he means the support for knowledge and ignorance. And the knowledge and ignorance he's talking about here is knowledge and ignorance about things other than uh, ourselves. So when we know ourselves, that means when we know the reality of ourselves, the the reality of ego, which is the support for for knowledge and ignorance, knowledge and ignorance will cease to exist. Why? Because Knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves exists only for ego. So ego is the support for knowledge and ignorance. But if we know the reality of ego, ego will cease to exist and the reality alone will remain. So when ego ceases to exist, knowledge and ignorance will cease to exist. And then in the next verse, verse 12, he says, Arivu ariyameyum atradu arivu ame. That means what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge. That is, the word he uses for knowledge here is Aribu. Aribu means both knowledge and awareness. So when he says what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance, that means knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves. So only the, the, the only the awareness that is aware, that, that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance about other things is the real awareness. He says the same in verse 27 of Upadesha Arivu ariyame, in almost exactly the same words, he says, Arivu atra that means only the, the awareness that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is the real, is awareness. But there, when he says it, only that is awareness, that means only that is the real awareness. And then he says, this is real, or this is the reality. Why? The, uh, well, he doesn't ask why, but he, gets, he answers the question why. There is not anything for knowing. This is the same as he says in, in, um, in that verse 3 of Ahmed If one knows oneself, what else is there to know? Here he explicitly says, there's, not, there's nothing for knowing. What does he mean by saying there's nothing for knowing? There's only one thing that actually exists, and that is ourself. And we know ourself just by being ourself. There's, not anything, there's no other thing for us to know. Nothing else actually exists. When he says, onju ille, ille there means no other thing exists. There's nothing other than ourself for us to know. Everything else is just an appearance. So, coming back to verse 12 of Uli uh, in which is in the first sentence, he says, what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge, knowledge in the sense of awareness. And then he says, that which knows is not real knowledge. That means it's not real awareness. So, that which knows here is referring to ego, which knows other things. That is not the real awareness. It's only a semblance of awareness. It is not chit. It is chitabasa. It is a, a semblance of awareness, not the real awareness. And then he says, since one shines without another for knowing or for causing to know, oneself is awareness. That is what we actually, we, our, our, our real nature shines without any other thing, either to know or to cause to know. So we self of a real awareness. Uh, uh, Par Andrew, we are not a void. Uh, no, And then in verse 13, he also says the same. Uh, so in all these verses, what he's emphasizing is knowing other things is useless. The only thing we need to know is to know ourselves. So long as we know other things, we are knowing ourself. Uh, we, we, we who know other things are ego, and ego always knows itself as I am this body, which is a false awareness of ourself. So it's only by knowing ourself that we can eradicate ego, and thereby uh, remove the false appearance of all other things. And then in verse 13 he, he of Uli he says, Jnana mam tane one oneself who is Jnana alone is real. Jnana here means awareness, pure awareness, it implies. So uh, oneself who is pure awareness alone is real. As, as I explained earlier, when Bhagavan talks about what is real, he means what actually exists. So we alone are what actually exists. So he's what he's saying here is the same, but he says in the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamay Ulludu, Atmasurupa Mandre. What actually exists is only Atmasurupa. So it's Atmasurupa, but he describes here as jnana mam tane, oneself who is awareness, pure awareness is what is implied. And so that alone is what is real. And then he goes on to say, nāna-vam-nyanam uh, uh, ag uh, awareness that is manifold is ignorance. That means awareness of multiplicity. In an earlier version of this verse, he said, Nana nyanam Nana nyanam means the awareness that sees as many. So what actually exists is one, and that one is a, a, that jnana itself, that awareness itself. But when that awareness sees itself as many, that is ignorance. Uh, so that the implication of um nana jnana awareness that is manifold. That is, when when we know many things, our awareness, so to speak, is is uh awareness that is by its nature one and indivisible, seems to become many. Um And then he goes on to say, even ignorance, that is, even that knowledge of multiplicity, which is unreal, does not exist except as oneself who is awareness. So what is actually real is only ourself. All other things, they cannot exist independent of ourself. And then he gives an analogy to illustrate this. All the many ornaments are unreal. Do they exist except as gold, which is real? That is, the ornaments are unreal because they, um, they, they, they are just mere names and forms. What is real is only the substance for gold. Of course, ultimately, gold isn't real. But as far as this analogy is concerned, gold is real, but ornaments are unreal because what is one day a ring may later be melted and become part of a necklace or something. So the ornaments are mere names and forms. But what is real is not the names and forms, but only the substance. In this case, uh, that's in the analogy, the substance is gold, but that's not the real substance. The real substance is our self, who are awareness. So awareness alone is the real substance. Everything else, all knowledge of multiplicity, is mere forms which are unreal. So, from all these various, um, from all these various uh, teachings that Bhagavan has so clearly given us, we can clearly, clearly understand His view on this question. That is, the questioner uh, said, "I would like Michael's view on this, please." Michael's view doesn't matter. What is Bhagavan's view? That is what matters. It is very, very clear. But Bhagavan's view is that what we should investigate and know is only ourself. Investigating anything other than ourself is just like analyzing all the rubbish in a barber shop. Everything other than ourself is unreal. It's all a mere appearance, so it needs to be discarded. So whoever says that we shouldn't investigate only ourselves. we should investigate um, Brahman or we should investigate the uh, b- b- various Tatvas or Whatever they say we should investigate, that is they, they are not Advaitins, because according to the, the Advaita in its pure form, as taught by Bhagavan, there is one thing, Ekam Eva Advait, one only without a second. And what is that one only? The thing without a second? Tatvamasi, you are that. That's why Bhagavan says what actually exists is only Atmasarupa. So we alone know what actually exists, so we alone know what we should investigate. If you want to know what is real, what should you investigate? You should investigate what is real. But the, the questioner, the way the questioner frame the question was, Bhagavan's teaching on self-investigation, on self inquiry, directs us to the uh, reality by discrimination discrimination. What is the discrimination that is required in Vedanta? All the classical texts on Vedanta begin by giving certain basic qualifications for following this part of Vedanta. Of course, none of us have these qualifications perfectly, but at least we should have these qualifications in some degree. And the first qualification is nitya-anitya-vastu-vibhaka. Nitya-anitya-vastu-vibhaka means, uh, vibhaka means, uh, often is translated as discrimination. That is discrimination in the sense of distinguishing, discerning. So nitya-anitya-vastu-vibhaka means discerning or uh, distinguishing what is real, sorry, what is permanent from what is impermanent. What is permanent is only I am. The only thing that always exists and shines is I am. And we have to look at our own experience for that. From our own experience, we know the only thing that but, but we are always aware of, the only thing that is always existing and shining in our experience is I am. Everything else appears and disappears. So all other things are a nitya. What is nitya, permanent, is only I am. And what is permanent alone is what is real. Because as Krishna says in Gita, there's there's no non-existence of what what exists, and there's no existence of what doesn't exist. So what actually exists is only what always exists. So that nitya-nitya-vastu-vivaka, that is the starting point of, of Vedanta, the starting point of Advaita. We have to first distinguish uh, uh, what is permanent from what is impermanent because what is permanent alone is real and what is permanent in our experience is only I am so th- what is called brahman or god you are yourself for that that aham brahmasmi I I itself is brahman I'm, I, I am brahman there's no brahman other than I am so I am is what is real so bhagavan Boguman first points out to us what is real. He ex- also explains why everything else is unreal, and that it appears only in the view of the ego. So having pointed out what is unreal, the, the, well, the question goes on to say, and points to the reality from the appearance. That is, he distinguishes. I think what he means by points to, he distinguishes the reality from the appearance. The reality is what is permanent, the appearance is what is impermanent. Everything is impermanent except I am. So, what we should investigate is only I am and nothing other than I am. That is the whole point of Advaita. That is why Advaita emphasizes Ekam eva advaitium, there is one only without a second. And what is that one only thing without a second? Tatumasi, you are that. So, if we are the one thing without a second, what should we investigate? Only ourselves. Nothing else is real. So, Bhagavan's view on this uh, point of whether we should investigate anything other than ourselves is abundantly clear from so many teachings he gave. According to Bhagavan, the only thing worth investigating and knowing is ourself, because everything else is unreal. Sorry, that was quite a lengthy answer to that question, but it touches upon, I mean, that. That question touches upon the very fundamentals of Bhagavan's teachings and the very fundamentals of a That's why I gave such an elaborate um uh answer to that. I hope that is useful. But one thing we have to notice with Bhagavan's teaching, Bhagavan's teachings are always practical. they always they're, Bhagavan always draws out the practical implication of a So when a Dvaita says there's only one thing without a second, and that, that one thing is you. What is the practical implication of that? As see Bhagavan says in verse 32 of Ul when the Vedas tell us you are that, we what should we do? We should investigate. Oh, if I am that, then what am I? We should investigate I. We shouldn't be con, we should forget about that, because there's no that other than I. So Bhagavan is always, if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, whatever he teaches us, it all has a practical implication, and it's all pointing our attention back to ourself. One thing that we need to investigate and know is ourself. Investigating other things, knowing other things, according to Bhagavan, is useless. So uh, are there any questions on this or any other aspect of Bhagavan's teachings?
1: Yes. The first question is I lived for over 50 years thinking that I'm the doer that I decide and I interfere in things I plan etc now I have to leave it all to surrender as all is planned by bhagwan I do believe in this but often find it difficult to advise others in the way I used to or warn against something or interfere this is the this is the warfare of grace uh, in warfare.
0: which I often fail. Um, I think they mean warfare. Warfare. Uh, yeah, but
1: war, yeah,
0: yeah. This but is, Bhagwan uses that term warfare of grace in actual oh, like. I see.
1: Okay, <laughs> this is the warfare of grace in which I often fail.
0: What would Pagwan teach in this respect? Thank you. Um, that is regarding doership. Doership is the very nature of ego, because when we rise as ego. We experience ourselves as a body. I am this body. And the body we experience ourselves as, as Bhagavan says, is a form of five sheaves. That means it's not just the physical body that we experience as ourselves, all the five sheaves collectively, as a a bundle, we experience as ourselves. So the five sheaves are the physical form of this body, the the life or prana but animates this body, in other words, all the physiological functions, the breathing, the, uh, rest, uh, the, the heartbeat, and uh, the, all the various physiological processes that are going on in the body, they're all collectively called prana. The mind, in this context, mind means the grosser functions of the mind, the perception, the memory, the thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on. Uh, that's the manamaya kosha or the mind, then subtler than that is the intellect, the, the bignana-maya kosha, um, and subtler than the intellect is the will, the, bigni, the anandamaya kosha. So all these five collectively we experience as ourselves. So whatever actions are done by any of these sheaves, they are done by me. This body is sitting, so my experience is I am sitting, this body is breathing. My experience is, I am breathing. This this mind is, is, is perceiving, seeing, hearing, uh, touching, tasting. Um, so my experience is, I am seeing, I am hearing, I am touching, I am tasting. The mind is uh, thinking, it is feeling, it is uh, uh, remembering all these things. I am th- thinking this, I am remembering this, I am feeling this. Uh, I am in a very emotional state or whatever it is um the workings of the intellect i am i am reasoning, i am judging, i am discriminating, i am understanding i am not understanding we identify with the functions of the intellect, likewise the functions of the will I like this, I dislike that I want this, I don't want that i uh i dislike i i i I, I love this, I hate that, I, I, um, I hope this, I fear that. All these we identify, because we identify this body consisting of these five sheaths as I, all the actions of these five sheaves are experienced by us as actions done by us. Th- that is, put very simply, we say there are three instruments of action, uh, body, speech, and mind. Um, or actually, we the that's so from going from gross to subtle, but actually our experience is we go from subtle to gross. What we think that leads to words and that leads to actions. But all of these things we I, we experience them as I am thinking, I am speaking, I am uh I am uh, I am doing, because we identify these so. Doership, it's not just, uh, though Bhagavan calls, it, 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 though it is sometimes described as a thought, it's a thought in a very deep sense, not just in a superficial sense. So people say, oh, I'm trying to give up the sense of doership. We can't give up the sense of doership by just imagining I'm not doing this. Because our experience is I am doing this. I am sitting. I am talking. I am thinking. That's our actual experience. So to get rid of this doership, we need to get rid of ego. Because it is ego that identifies itself with this body consisting of five she's and therefore experiences all this. So in, the means to get rid of ego is not just imagining I am not the doer, that is not means trying to remain without doing anything. That is also not the way to get rid of the ego. Ego is a is a false identification. We identify ourselves with this body consisting of five sheaths. So we need to separate ourselves from this false identification. In this false identification, I am this body. What is real is I am. What is unreal is this body. So in order to separate ourselves from the body, which is unreal, we must hold on to I am, which is real. In other words, in order to separate ourselves from what we are not, we need to hold on to ourselves, to what we actually are, which is ourselves as I am. The more we hold on to I am, the more these other things drop off of their own accord. Because the body is not holding, the, the, these five sheets are not holding us we are holding with five sheaves and saying i am this body of consisting of these five sheaves so if instead of holding on to anything other than ourselves if we hold on to ourselves that means if we attend to ourselves other things will naturally drop off this is why this is the, the great Practical revelation Bhagavan has given us But the nature of ego is, or the nature of ourself as ego, is to rise, stand, and flourish by holding on to things other than ourself, but to subside and dissolve back into our source uh, by attending to ourself alone. So the more we hold on to ourself, the more other things will naturally uh, slip off. In this process of trying to hold on to ourself, though we may succeed for a few moments here and there, most of the time, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we are failing. Why? Because we have still had so much taste, so much liking to go out and to hold on to other things, because our very existence as ego depends on our holding things up other than ourselves. So, it's the very nature of ego to be strongly inclined to attend to other things, to hold on to other things. Those inclinations to attend to other things are what are called Vishaya Vasanas. Vishaya means uh, objects or phenomena, in other words, anything other than ourselves. Vasana means inclination. So the inclination to hold on to anything other than ourselves is called a Vishaya Vasana. The Vishaya Vasanas are not ego, Vishaya Vasanas are part of the will. They're, they're the seeds that form the will. That the will consists in its seed form of nothing but the share of But the share of are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. So the 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 asanas are, are the subtlest of the five sheaves. So they are not ego, but ego. Uh, It's the very nature of ego to have the Veshaya Varsanas and to identify itself with the Veshaya Vasanas. I like this, I dislike that. That's the very nature of ego. So in order to overcome these varsanas that we have cultivated over so many, over countless lives, we we can't just all of a sudden say, okay, I'm gonna stop having any varsanas. No, the varsanas are there. We, all we can do is to slowly extricate ourselves from them by weakening them. Vāsanas have no strength of their own, because there are inclinations. They, whatever strength the vāsanas seem to have, they derive from us. And vāsanas gain strength to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by them. So the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by a particular vasana, the stronger that vasana becomes. The more we refrain from being swayed by a vasana, the weaker it becomes. So there are two types of vasanas. The the vast majority of vasanas are vishaya vasanas, that inclinations to attend to things other than ourselves. The opposite of visheya vasanas is sattvasana. Sat means being. So the inclination to hold on to our being, in other words, the love to hold on to our being, that is called sattvasana. When we are practicing self-investigation, we are trying to hold on to our being. We're trying to hold on to I am alone. So the more we hold on to I am and thereby remain just as I am, the stronger the, the satvasana becomes and the weaker all the viseyavasanas become. Because the more we hold, we are holding on to our being, the less we are allowing ourselves to be swayed by the viseyavasanas. So they gradually lose their strength and like uh, seeds that are uh, roasted in a fire, they lose their uh, eventually, they'll lose their ability to sprout. So the whole process of self-investigation, what Bhagavan refers to in Aksharamalai as the warfare of grace, that is, this though it seems to be a warfare that we are fighting, it's actually being fought by grace. What is grace? Grace is Bhagavan, Bhagavan himself is grace. He is our own real nature, what we actually are. And our real nature is infinite love. So that infinite love that Bhagavan has for us, as Bhagavan doesn't love us as something other than himself, he loves, he, but he doesn't know us as anything other than himself. He knows us as himself alone, so he loves us as himself. So Bhagavan's love for us is infinite, it's unlimited. That love is what we experience as grace. So it is grace that has uh that has sown this seed of love to turn within in our heart. In other words, it's, it's the but what we experience as a sattvasana, liking to hold on to ourselves, that is that is grace itself that we are experiencing as that sattvasana. That the grace manifests in our heart in the form of sattvasana. And as Bhagavan often said about grace, grace is not something up in heaven that's going to descend down upon us. Grace exists in our own heart. Grace is our own real nature. It is what is always shining in our heart as I am. So um, the grace, grace works by working through us. So all the effort we make to turn our attention within, that is is grace working through us in the form of that effort to turn within. So what can we do? We have to yield ourselves to that grace. That grace is trying to draw us within. We need to yield ourselves to that by allowing our attention to be drawn back within. So ultimately, it's all a warfare of grace, but we experience it as a, a warfare within our own will. Between our liking to turn within and to hold on to our being, and our numerous vasanas take, that take us outwards. So, this is the warfare of grace that Bhagavan, um, Bhagavan uh, uh, spoke about, uh, Bhagavan sang about in Akshayamalai. This is a process. A warfare is a process. We have to undergo this process. So, we, just, we have to be very patient. We shouldn't expect immediate results. Oh, I went on a I went on a self-realization week, weekend, and I didn't get my self-realization, so I demanded my money back. It's not that this is all gimmicks. Nowadays, all these things are, are just gimmicks. But real—that is, the real spirituality, the real spiritual sadhana—it's how long is it going to take? It's going to take as long as it's going to take. It all depends on how how. Um, how how much love we have to turn within, and how much effort we make to turn within. But all our love to turn within, and our effort to turn within, is the working of grace. But we need to cooperate with grace. So long as we are still rushing outwards, we we are we are going against the current of grace, so to speak. So we need to yield ourselves to that inward pull of grace. So we yield ourselves to that by trying our best to follow the path that Bhagavan has shown us, trying to investigate who am I by turning our attention within and thereby surrendering ourselves. So I hope that adequately answers that question. So the question is, if
1: the world is an appearance and unreal, then why would awakened beings still interact in the world through teaching, eating, etc and not have these things disappear for them as in a dream. When waking from a dream it is over. There is no continuity. It does not seem to me this to be the same in life. Ramana spoke with people, walked in the world, Papaji speaks of Ramana. Could you explain?
0: Um <laughs> Because we see ourselves, Bhagavan explained, They, they said what, this is what Bhagavan said, because we mistake ourselves to be a body, we mistake Banyani to be a body. So we see the person, Ramana Maharshi, and we see that person, is, it seems to be a person just like us, interacting with the world, answering questions, um, uh, composing poetry, singing songs on, on Arunachala, and... Um, cutting vegetables in the kitchen and um, uh, listening to the, the, um, inquiring about people when they come, how they are, how their family are. He seems to be behaving in this world just like we behave. Because we see him as a person, but in his experience, he is not that person. He, in his experience, he is just that infinite space of pure awareness. So in in his actual experience, there is no world or anything other than himself. He alone is. But because we are still dreaming, in our dream we see him as a person. And that person gives us teachings telling us that all this is, is a mere dream, and that in order to wake up from this dream, uh, we need to know ourselves as we actually are, and thereby turn within. So. It, it's inevitable. So long as we see ourselves as a body, we we mistake the jnani to be a body. But Bhagavan often said, jnana me jnani. Jnana, me jnani. jnana means uh, pure awareness. So pure awareness alone is the jnani. Jnani means the knower of, of jnana. But what knows pure awareness, only pure awareness can know pure awareness, because pure awareness can never be an object of knowledge so it's not that a, a person realizes the uh, the b- 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 their real nature What is called self-realization is nothing but annihilation of ego. When ego is annihilated, there's no identification with body or mind or anything. There is only pure awareness remains. So what Bhagavan's actual experience is pure awareness. But in our view, he seems to be a person like us and seems to give teachings. So why did he appear in our dream in order to give us these teachings? Because our minds are outward going, it is necessary for him to appear outwardly in order to tell us to turn back within. And there are various analogies Bhagavan gave like, for this. He said, like a, like a, uh, if you want to catch a ta- uh, wild deer or wild elephants, you take a tame deer or a tame elephant And using the tame elephant as a decoy, you catch the wild elephants, like that, Guru appears in human form. He appears like us in order to catch us and devour us in film. That's one analogy he built. Another analogy he built is like the the lion seen in the dream of an elephant. There's the belief that, li- that, that, that elephants are so afraid of lions that if an elephant dreams of a lion, the shock will wake it up. So, other one so, the, the appearance of a guru in name and form is like the appearance of the lion in the elephant's dream. A lion is unreal, but the waking that results from the lion's appearance in the dream is real. Likewise, the name and form of the Guru are unreal, but it brings about the real awakening. So when the name and form are unreal. What is shining through that name and form, that is our own real nature. That is the, that is, the, as he actually is, is shining through that body, giving us those teachings. So, everyone is actually not doing anything. He's just being as he is. He's not, knowing anything or doing anything, he's just being as he is. But because his nature is infinite love, and that infinite love is what we experience as grace, grace uses that body and mind to give us these teachings in order to turn our attention back within and thereby wake us up from this dream. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question.
1: Oh, the next question is: Is there any purpose to the appearance, other than discovering beingness?
0: No, 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 no purpose. The, uh, even to say that the purpose of, of the appearance is to discover beingness, even that is not a very satisfactory answer. Because why should we? Why should we first uh, um, raise a ego and then have to discover our real nature. We are always what we actually are. So there is no adequate answer So what is the purpose of all this? Why all this? Bhagavan by the, by the said, but people often used to ask Bhagavan, but Bhagavan, why is Maya coming to existence? Why has ego ever risen in the first place? Bhagavan said that's the wrong question. First, you find this ego, And then you bring it to me, and then we can find out why it came into existence. If you search for ego, you're never going to find any such thing. Has anyone ever found such a thing called ego? No. We seem to be ego only so long as we don't attend to ourselves. If we attend to ourselves keenly enough, we don't find any such thing as ego. So asking why why all this or what is the purpose of all this is last, like, ask, or like asking how did all this come into existence? That's another question people like to ask. It amounts to the same. one said these are all just like asking how or why or for what purpose was the son of a barren woman born? There is no such thing as the son of a barren woman because if she's barren, she that means she's got no son. If if a lady has a son, then she's not barren. So, uh, the son of a barren woman is like a square circle. It's a a logical impossibility. So, all the questions… we Ego is as non-existent as a square circle of a son of a barren woman. So, asking all the how or why is missing the point. What we need to do is ask who or what is this ego. If we investigate what this ego is, we will find there's no such thing at all. What actually exists is only ourself as we always actually are. And then there's no one left to discover beingness because beingness alone remains and beingness always knows beingness. That is, sat is always chit. Sat always knows itself just by being itself. And we are that. I hope that adequately answered that question. The next question is:
1: It seems that chit is sometimes translated as consciousness, and at other times as awareness. Does it matter, or is there a difference between these two translations concerning Bhagwan's teachings and the practice of self-investigation?
0: No, it really doesn't matter. Um, generally, I favour translating it as awareness because that is essentially that—that that is what is meant by by chit is what is aware or what is conscious. But there's a lot of conf- there's more confusion surrounding the English word conscious than um, than aware. For example, often philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists will talk about a conscious thought or a conscious experience. What they mean by that is a thought or an experience uh, of which one is conscious. So it doesn't mean that the thought is conscious, but we are conscious of the thought. So Because of this confusion in the way. Conscious is used in English. You, no one will say an aware thought, they, but they will talk about a conscious thought or a conscious experience. So, the, the, there's less confusion and ambiguity surrounding the word aware, aware or awareness. That is why I generally favour using the word awareness. But actually, if we if we understand. It Correctly, it really doesn't matter whether you whether you translate as uh, awareness or consciousness. Uh, ultimately, they if, if used correctly, awareness and consciousness both mean the same thing. However, in English, we've got no adequate term for it because the sense in which the term uh, chitta jnana is used in Sanskrit or in Tamil Arivu or Unavu is, in the deeper sense, is it's in the sense of that which is aware. Chit means what is aware. In English, awareness or consciousness means the quality of being conscious or aware. However, just like reality means the, the, the quality of being real, but generally in English we, we use reality to mean what is real. When we we talk about reality, we're generally talking about what is real. So it's not just the quality of of being real, it is what is real. In the same way, in in Vedanta, when we translate Bhagavan's teachings, or any Advaitic teachings, because we don't have any better terms in English, we have to use consciousness or awareness, But we should understand the the sense in which these terms are used is not merely the quality of being conscious, but that which is conscious. Because according to Advaita, consciousness or awareness is not merely a quality, it's not something that sometimes you're conscious, sometimes you're unconscious. No, consciousness or awareness is what is fundamental. So what is conscious is always conscious. So, in the context of Bhagavan's teachings, whether it's translated as consciousness or awareness, it means what is conscious or what is aware. So it's not the um it's not anything of which we are aware, but only what is aware. And even then, we have to make a distinction. Bhagavan made a distinction between sutarivu and sutatrarivu. Sutarivu means transitive awareness, that is awareness of other things, whereas suttatrarivu is the the literal meaning of suttarivu is the pointing or showing awareness, suttu in Tamil means to, to show or to point out, so the awareness that shows or points out, that is the transitive awareness, awareness of things, whereas the Pure awareness is suttacharivu, there's no pointing or showing, it is just awareness in its pure condition. That is, we can say awareness devoid of objects or devoid of content, that's just a pure awareness. Pure awareness is uh, what we actually are. So our real nature is not aware of anything, it is just aware. Whereas ego, the nature of ego is to be always aware of things. So the Ego is not the real awareness of things is not the real awareness. Awareness in its pure condition, in its real condition, is just aware. And if we think about it, we can be we, we cannot be aware of anything without being aware. But we can be aware without being aware of anything. Because in sleep, we're aware, but we're not aware of anything. There's no objects of awareness in sleep. We are simply aware I am. We're aware. Even we, we can say we're aware of our own existence, but obviously our existence is not an object of our awareness. So the best way to say it is we are aware I am. I am is not an object of awareness. Just by being aware, we're aware of our own being, and that is being aware I am. So. Um, it's not whether we use the word consciousness or awareness it really doesn't matter. The reason I generally use awareness, as I say, is because there's more confusion around um, the the word consciousness in English than there is around uh, awareness. That's why philosophers often, when they're trying to clarify what they mean by awareness, they they will often say. Um, if, Consciousness—that—that that is what is aware, or something like that. They—they say they—they they often re- resort back to aware to clarify what they mean by consciousness. But this is just a linguistic confusion in English and a confusion in in the in, in the way people think. But it's not actually there's no s- substantial difference. To be conscious and to be aware, it means the same. So essentially, these words mean the same.
1: The next question is, in Appendix 1 of The Path of Sri Ramana, Part 1 by Sadhu Om, it explains that the mind and prana subside together but it draws a distinction about this in deep sleep. Therefore, when, and this is the quotation, therefore, when the mind subsides, the prana will also subside. And when the prana subsides, the mind will also subside. But in deep sleep, um, that is, sushupti, although the mind subsides, the prana does not subside. It is arranged thus by God's plan for the protection of the body and so that others may not mistake the body to be dead. This confused me because it seems to suggest that the body and others exist when I'm in deep sleep, which seems at at odds with the core teaching of there being just one, me.
0: Please clarify. Thank you. Right. Okay. That is actually um, a quotation from uh, from Nana, from uh, the eighth paragraph of Nana. When Bhagavan originally wrote it, in Nana, what he said is, um, the, the, the meaning of what he said is, um, therefore when the mind ceases, uh, the prana also ceases. And when the prana ceases, the mind also ceases. The prana is said to be the gross form of the mind. Until the time of death, the mind keeps the prana in the body, and at the moment the body dies, Grasping it, that's grasping the prana, it goes. In other words, it takes the, the prana with it. Um, therefore, pranayama is just an aid to restrain the mind, but will not bring about manonasa. That was the, in the original version when Bhagavan wrote the in the question and answer version, there's nothing about um the prana remaining in sleep. Um, and it also wasn't there in the essay version as Bhagavan originally wrote it. Um, However, sometime around the 1930s, three more sentences appeared. These were a later interpolation. What I guess is, I mean, what we can infer is, someone would have asked Bhagavan a question, and since they weren't able to understand more Deeply, but one would have given an answer, but to satisfy them, and then someone would have said, "Oh, this should be added to clarify what's in that uh, eighth paragraph. What is in those three sentences is, um, and these appear after the sentence. Therefore, when the mind ceases, uh, the prana also ceases, and when the prana ceases, the mind also ceases. So then comes these three in." Uh, sentences that were later interpolated. However, in sleep, even though the mind has ceased, the prana does not cease. It is arranged thus by the ordinance of God for uh, for uh, the purpose of protecting the body, and so that other people do not wonder whether the body has died. When the mind ceases in waking and in samadhi, uh, um, the but, but prana ceases. So these were three sentences added later. Did Bhagavan actually say like this? Well, we don't know exactly because it's a later interpolation. It's quite possible Bhagavan did say this, but this isn't his core teaching. He would have said like this to someone who was not able to grasp the fact, but in 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 sleep there is no Ego, and therefore, there's no uh, body, nor mind, nor world, nor anything. For many people, this is it's in it's they find it very, very difficult to understand or accept this. It's actually very, very simple, as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Vuludhana, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So, since Ego doesn't exist in sleep. That means nothing else exists. No body, no prana, no mind, no world, nothing. That is Bhagavan's real teaching. But for those who were not able to grasp that, sometimes he would give explanations to satisfy them. So he, he he perhaps when someone asked this question and knowing that they wouldn't be able to understand his deeper teaching, he would have said, yes, yes, in sleep, even though the mind has ceased, the prana does not cease. It is arranged thus by the ordinance of God for the purpose of protecting the body and so that other people do not wonder whether the body has died. That obviously satisfied someone. And because they were satisfied with that, they wanted that to be added in, uh, uh, interpolated here. So that's how this came to be interpolated. But that is not the original teaching. That is not what Bhagavan said to Shiv Prakashan It is not what he would say to anyone who has any who's willing to understand his teachings more deeply. Bhagavan's. T- said on so many occasions, if you read in talks and day by day and Maharshi's gospel and such places, but so many places where Bhagavan says that in sleep there's no body, no world, nothing. Many people, you can see it even from those dialogues in books like talks, you can see people have difficulty understanding that. No, No, Bhagavan, how can you say, though I'm not aware of the body, but other people are aware of the body. Um, well, to, uh, people who are awake when I'm sleeping, they're aware of it. So how can you say there's no body or world in sleep? Bhag- Bhagavan's reply to that was um, to uh, calling upon the testimony of others to uh, uh, to prove the existence of body and world in sleep is like calling on the testimony of a thief uh, to 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 vouchsafe that he's innocent. If you ask a thief, are you innocent or guilty? The thief, will, of course, will say, oh, I'm innocent. I would never do such a thing as steal anything. Um, so the, the world will always tell us, the, the people in the world will always tell us, yes, but we exist. We exist independent of you and everything. But if we think about it deeply, why should we believe that anything exists when we're not aware of it? If all of this is just a dream, that means nothing exists independent of our perception of it. That is, in dream, we see a vast world just like this world. We see so many people in it. But, and so long as we're dreaming, it all seems so very real. But when we wake up, we recognize, oh, it was all a mental fabrication. None of it existed, independent of my perception of it. The The dream world, only appeared in my in my mind. It was in my own, uh, in the within the field of my own perception. It appeared and it disappeared. It didn't exist. There was no world existing outside. So, uh, though though I may have asked people in my dream, did this, does this body and world exist when I'm sleeping? Those people would have said yes. But when we wake up, we know that it was all just a mental fabrication. So. Since in sleep, in dream, when, we, when we're dreaming, what we are dreaming seems to be so real, why should we believe that this present state is anything other than a dream? Is there anything that we experience in this state, but we could not also experience in a dream? Obviously not, because in a dream you can experience anything. So there's absolutely no evidence in our present state that this is anything other than a dream. It's a mere assumption that this is something other than a dream. So if, as Bhagavan teaches us, this is just a dream, then the dream exists only so long as we're aware of it. When we are asleep, when we're not dreaming, there's no dream world. So this, this, this world according to Bhagavan, exists only when we rise as ego in the waking state. When we don't rise as ego in the waking state, this body and wo- world and mind do not exist at all. That is the core teaching of Bhagavan. But because many people were not able to grasp that, he sometimes had to uh, to, to dilute his teachings. This is what Bhagavan says in Nuludunapdu Anabandham about the idea that uh, prarabdha exists for vinyani. Even, even Shankara, as I mentioned earlier, even Shankara in his commentary, he says that for vinyani, though uh, Agamya and Sanchita ceases, but prarabdha remains for the duration of the body. But why did he say so? As Bhagavan said, it's only a reply to the questions of others. So those who are not able to understand more deeply, how can prarabdha remain when ego goes? Because ego is the doer of agamya and the experiencer of the fruit of agamya, which is prarabdha. So, when in the absence of ego, there cannot be any karma, as Bhagavan says. When when a husband dies, if a husband has three wives and he dies, all three wives become widows. Likewise, when ego dies, all three karmas cease to exist. But Shankara said like that in answer to the question of others. Others means those who are not yet ready to understand more deeply. More diluted teachings had to be given to them. Bhagavan so often gave teachings that are not his pure teachings. He had to dilute his teachings to suit the, the grasping power of those he was answering. That's why many of the answers that we read in books like Talks and Day by Day do not represent his pure teachings. They don't represent his pure teachings for two reasons. Firstly, because often the recor- what was recorded in those books was not so accurate. People recorded what they understood. So that's one reason why it's not so accurate. The other reason it's not so accurate is that often Bhagavan had to dilute his teachings for those who were not ready to grasp the deeper teachings, he had to say it in a, in a way to make it more palatable to them in order to guide them at their level. And later on, they will, if they go deeper in this path, then they will come to understand the deeper teachings. That's why, for example, in talks when it's recorded, but when um, that yogi who went to America, what was his name, Yogananda, who went to America and started the Self-Realization Fellowship, when he on one of his, um, when he returned to India for one uh, visit, he came to Bhagavan, and the, quite one of the questions he asked Bhagavan, what teachings are to be given for the uplift of the masses? And Bhagavan says, no teachings can be given en masse. The teaching has to be according to the taught. In other words, whatever the, the teaching that is suitable has to be suited to the particular person who is being taught. That's why if, we, if, if you go out on the street or go to churches or temples or mosques or something and begin to teach Bhagavan's teachings, people are going to throw stones at you because they, 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 they're not yet ready to accept because Bhagavan's teachings are very deep and very subtle. So only when we, when we are willing to accept these, Are these teachings suitable for us? That's why so many other different philosophies and religions are there to suit people at different levels of spiritual development. So, in accordance with that principle, even Bhagavan often had to dilute his teachings to suit the individual needs of particular people who weren't ready to grasp the deeper teachings. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. Yes. Thank you, Michael.
1: Right well, the next question is is the advaitic idea of the cessation of ego's existence radically different from the non-advaitic idea of ego's improvement and perfection to the extent that it becomes indistinguishable from god
0: <laughs> um we can take that other way of expressing it as a metaphorical way of saying it, but actually, it is annihilation. What is what Bhagavan teaches, but you know, annihilation of ego. That is the correct way of expressing it. That is the more because what is ego? Ego is as as Bhagavan explains in, for example, in verse twenty-four of Vrudhunapadum, the the body is Jada, and therefore it's not aware of itself as I. A Jada body does not say I, he says. Such does not rise. In between, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. And that one thing that rises as the extent of a body, that is Chit Jada uh, uh that is the knot formed by the entanglement of Chit and Jada, uh, Bandam, bondage, uh, jivan, the uh, jiva or soul, um, uh, nupame, the uh, subtle body, ahande, ego, uh, this samsara, uh, mind. So ego is nothing but that false sigh but rises as I am this body. So that is the problem, because why we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are, because we are aware of ourselves as something other than what we actually are. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So without uh, eradicating this false awareness, I am this body, we cannot know ourselves as we actually are. And how can we eradicate this false awareness? I am this body only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. So, if we as ego turn our attention back within to see what we actually are, as soon as we see what we actually are, we thereby cease to be ego because the ego is uh, that which is aware of itself as I am this body. When we're aware of ourselves as we actually are, we cease to be ego and remain as we actually are. So, the truth is. Annihilation of ego alone is um, is liberation. This is very much emphasized by Bhagavan in the final uh, verse of Uludunapadu, where he says um, that if there are so many different, though all apart from the um, apart from the Chavakas, the Lokiyatas, the materialists, all Indian philosophers, whether they were they, they, whether they were jains or the various schools of buddhism or the various schools of what later came to be called hinduism um vedanta or or uh, um or sankhya or yoga or um purva mimamsa or um uh, nyaya or Vaiseshika, all these different so many different uh, schools of philosophy all agreed on the there's, there's the ultimate goal is liberation but there's so many different ideas about what is liberation. For uh, for some people who are very pious devotees of God, they think liberation is going to Vaikuntha and living with uh, Vishnu in Vaikuntha, or going to Goloka and being with Krishna, or going to Mount Kailash and being with Shiva. Um, so there you still retain your form, you're still separate. So th- there's so many different concepts of um, Liberation. So, what Bhagavan says in that final verse of Uludunapdu is um, if it is said that the liberation that one attains is of three kinds with form, without form, or with or without form. That is, if you're remaining separate from God, you're obviously you're ha- you must have a form. Some say, no, you don't have a form. And some say, no, no, if you're liberated, you can have a form or not have a form according to choice. Sometimes you can be formless, sometimes you can take form. There are so many different ideas people have. Bhagavan said, if it is said like this, I will say, annihilation of the ego form that distinguishes liberation with form, without form, or with or without form, alone is liberation. So according to Bhagavan, the root problem is ego. The solution is annihilation of ego. So annihilation of ego alone is liberation. Ego is bondage. Annihilation of ego is liberation. But because people, most, that is, most people are afraid of the idea of losing their individuality or completely being annihilated. Bhagavan says, in, for example, in verse um, 20, of uh, of um, um oh no twenty one sorry in verse twenty one of pdu he ends by saying, Khan una Khan means being becoming food is seeing in other words, the only way to know oneself or to know God is to become food to to, to oneself in other words we have to be, ego has to be swallowed for many people that 's a very um that doesn't appeal to them at all. No, I want to go to heaven and to be with God and to retain my individuality or whatever their idea of liberation. They like the idea of retaining their individuality. So um, that's why so many different philosophies are there to suit people at different levels. But according to Bhagavan, the root, the cause of all our troubles is ego. Ego is the false awareness. I am this body, uh, or that. Or to be more precise, ego is that which is wrongly aware of itself as I am this body. So annihilation of ego alone is liberation, because ego is a false awareness of ourself. So we, so long as we have, a, we are aware of ourselves as anything other than what we actually are, we are bound by that uh, ignorant. We are bound within the confines of that ignorance what we take ourselves to be. So annihilation of ego alone is liberation. But other uh, other schools have thought they explain it in different ways. We can we can either say those are partial truths suited to people at a certain level, or we can say, "Oh, expanding the ego to infinity is a metaphorical way of annihilating ego because ego is a limitation. If it expands to infinity, it ceases to be ego." So, it's, but it's not—it's not a very clear or um, helpful way of describing it. The way Bhagavan has described it is much more helpful. If we are really serious about following this path, we need to recognize that ego is the problem. Annihilation of ego alone is the solution. I hope that adequately answers that question.
1: The next question is, why are we really unborn and therefore immortal?
0: If we are real, we must always exist. as as I explained earlier, what what Krishna says in the Gita in chapter two, he says it in the context of a battle where Krishna is, Arjuna is faced with the prospect of killing so many relatives and others, Um, but Krishna is giving so, he said, those who, who are dead, those who are to die, they're already killed by me. In other words, if they're due to die in this battle, they're going to die in this battle. If they're due to survive this battle, they'll survive this battle. But in the midst of giving all these teachings, Krishna gives a very, very deep teaching. He says, there is no existence for what does not exist. And there is no non-existence for what does exist. What that means is, but what what actually exists must always exist. If something seems to exist at one time and not at another time, it doesn't actually exist even when it, it seems to exist. Because if it actually exists, it can never not exist. If it, if it, if it, if it at times uh, does not exist, then it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. So this is a very, very important principle. So if we are real, We must be permanent, we must be eternal. And if we are permanent and eternal, then we cannot be born and we cannot die. So birth and death is for the body. But the birth and death of the body, it's just like changing, as Krishna also says in the Gita, it's just like changing a shirt. When one shirt gets worn out, we discard the old shirt and wear a new shirt. So the body is just like a shirt. But the the real birth and the real death, is the, the birth of ego is the, the, the beginning of everything, the death of ego is the end of everything. So, the uh, ego is born and it needs to die. And when ego dies, what remains is what we actually are, which is ever birthless and ever deathless. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question.
1: Last one is: uh, Did Ramana say anything about psychedelics? Can they be an aid on the path of self-investigation?
0: Um, I don't think there were uh, uh, psychedelics, as, or, or at least that term psychedelics, that came in only in the nineteen sixties. However, it's there's been a, from ancient times in India there was a custom among sadhus of taking um mostly it was uh what they call bung or uh that is um, hashish or, or ganja Ganja. um th- th- this is um basically the the, the hemp in a drug form um the, the, this custom of taking this and believing that, that by getting um some sort of but, but the experiences that you get as a result of taking such drugs but that these are spiritual experiences this is this belief is very prevalent among um certain sadhus in india not all sadhus but certain sadhus but when bhagavan was in the early days when bhagavan was on the hill such sadhus used to come and um i do i don't know I've never heard of anyone, any sadhus who were smoking ganja in Bhagavan's presence, but they often, many sadhus, they won't smoke the ganja, they, they won't smoke the um the, the hashish, the, the um the, the ganja as it's called. They they uh they have certain processes for refining it. They soak it, they soak the leaves in buttermilk and everything, and they have a way of making a very refined form, which they which they then um which they then make into a paste, and they either um, dissolve it in in a drink and drink it, or they will make a small, like a small green ball, and they swallow it. So there were there were sadhus who. Who were in the habit of taking ganja in this form, who came to Bhagavan. So Bhagavan was also given this. And for those sadhus, it's considered a very sacred. They take this as Shiva Prasadam, this, uh, this drug. So um, Bhagavan, of course, is unaffected by any of these things. So when he was given it, Bhagavan also took it. But, uh, but Bhagavan was least affected by these things. Um, but Bhagavan never actually encouraged this. Um, And when people asked him about this, he said, no, this is, this is um, all, all you get by taking these drugs is you get certain Sensory experiences. That is, if you take drugs, if you take psychedelics or ganja or these things, you get you may g- get an experience in which you see things in a very wonderful way. You may see um you may even see visions of God or whatever, according to your own imagination and things. But these are all um these are all sensory experiences. That's not actually, but then when you take a If you take LSD or something, you may be hallucinating. It's not that the things actually there outside, because according to Bhagavan, it's all a dream, but these hallucinations or these visions or whatever you get as a result of these things, as Bhagavan says in Uliv Dunapti, verse 20. Without seeing oneself, seeing God is seeing just a manamaya kakshi, seeing just a mental vision. So even if you take these psychedelics and think that you're seeing visions of God, these are all just mental. So these are all, it's all the experiences you get as a result of taking drugs are experiences for the outward going mind. So our aim in this path is not to allow the mind to go outward to experience any phenomena, whether hallucinations or whatever, or visions or whatever it may, you may consider it to be. Our aim is to turn our attention within, to know the reality of the experiencer. In other words, in this path, we are not seeking experiences. We are seeking to know the reality of the experiencer. So all these drugs may give wonderful experiences, but that has nothing to do with real spirituality. Real spirituality is investigating the, and knowing the reality of the experiencer. When we, the experiencer is ego. When we investigate ego and know the underlying reality, which is the pure I am, ego is thereby annihilated and all experience comes to an end. So these drugs can only be useful for uh, enjoying phenom- experience of phenomena. You may, If you take drugs, you may experience all sorts of wonderful phenomena, but that is not spirituality. That is all just um, the outward-going mind. This, the path of Advaita, the path taught by Bhagavan, is nivriti maga. That means withdrawal. It, all these wonderful experiences that people try to experience by yoga, by taking drugs, by oh, so many different things, these are all prabriti. it's all the outward going mind but uh, experiences all these things. So if we are if we are drawn to the maga. The path of withdrawal. We will not be. We will have no interest in all these drugs and the experiences that we can get by drugs, or in the experiences that uh, certain practices of yoga, for example, can give all sorts of wonderful experiences. But that is not. That that shouldn't interest us if we are following the the spiritual, the true spiritual path as taught by Bhagavan. This is where vivacca comes in. We need to, that all, whatever you, you may experience when you take a drug, it's all impermanent. It's all just an appearance. We, so we need to distinguish uh, we need to have that nitya and nitya vastu vivaka. We need to distinguish what is real from what is, sorry, what is permanent from what is impermanent. What is permanent is only I am. So that is what we should investigate. All these visions and hallucinations and wonderful experiences, um, these are all anitya. Uh, uh, They're all impermanent appearances, so they should not concern us at all. So, I hope that's an adequate answer to that question.
1: The last question. Um, How did Pagwan describe the state of liberation metaphorically?
0: Um, Different explanations are given according to, that is, most explanations are um, that is, there are explanations ab- about the, the the state of the jiva mukta. But all those explanations are based on the, on the wrong belief that the jnani is the person that they, they seem to be. What Bhagavan actually said about liberation is that so, so, um, so long as we know the world, in other words, so long as we know any objects Anything other than ourself, we do not know ourselves, And when we know ourselves, we do not know any objects. Uh, for example, in verse, I mean, in the fourth paragraph, well, in the third paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, um, if the mind, which is the cause for all awareness, implying awareness of things other than ourselves, and for all activity ceases, jagat drishti, perception of the world, will, will cease. Just as unless awareness of the imaginary rope goes, awareness of the rope, which is the ajishtana, the base or foundation, will not arise. Unless perception of the world, which is a fabrication, departs, uh, um, darshana of swarupa, which is the ajishtana, the base, um, will not arise. In other words, so long as we are seeing the world, we are not seeing ourselves. And when we see ourselves, we will not see the world. He he goes on to explain the same idea in the next um, paragraph. Um, he, he, in the next paragraph, he says uh, at a certain point, excluding thoughts, there is no not separately any such thing as world. In sleep, there are no thoughts and consequently, there is no world. In waking and dream, there are thoughts and consequently, there is also a world. Uh, just as a spider springs out Uh, It spins out thread from within itself and again draws it back into itself, so the mind makes the world appear. Uh, or In other words, it projects the world from within itself and again dissolves it back into itself. And then he goes on to say, when the mind comes out from Atma Swarupa, the world appears. Therefore, when the world appears, Swarupa does not appear. Swarupa means our own real nature. When Sarupa appears, within bracket shines, the world does not appear. In other words, when we, so long as we are aware of the world, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are. When we are aware of ourselves as we actually are, we are not aware of the world. So the, the state of banyani is the state of pure awareness. And we cannot adequately um we cannot adequately um uh grasp that with um, that, that by means of a mind we cannot adequately grasp that um they in verse 31 of the yes um bhagavan says um it's a little bit tricky to um to uh translate this verse into english um here bhagavan is using a, a plural form but he's—it's an honorific plural. So though he's talking about plural, obviously there is not a, there's no plurality of jnani. There's only one. There can only ever be one jnani because the, the jnani is not the person that they, they seem to be. The Nyani is pure awareness. So, but what he says in this verse is, for those who are. Happiness composed of that, in other words, those who are tanmayananda, tanmayananda means happiness composed of that. In other words, happiness that is Brahman, which rose destroying themselves, that means destroying ego, what one thing exists for doing. And then he says, they do not know anything other than themselves. Uh, who can conceive their state as like this? That is. As the mind, we always know things other than ourselves. So how can we understand the state of one who knows nothing other than himself? That is the thing. So really, nothing can be, nothing that can be said about the state of vinyani can really be grasped by us. If you want to know the state of Vinyani, we need to know ourselves, because we ourselves, vinyana as he says in verse 13, but I read earlier, verse 13 of Napdu, Jnana tane me. One self who is Jnana alone is real. And as Bhagavan often said, Jnana nyani, Jnani. Jnana Nyan, alone is the Jnani. In other words, what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. So the, the state of the Jnani is pure awareness. Oh, there is one other thing Bhagavan says about. Um, about you, you, because you ask about what is the the, the state of banyani in um, uh, verse twenty eight of Rupadesha Undia. What Bhagavan says in this verse is, um, "Tanadu." I, tanadu here is a poetic elongation of Tanadu, so it means one's own. Uh, tanadu il Yadu ena tan uh, terihil, Hill. That means. If one knows what the nature of oneself is, pin then anadi, ananta, akanda, Um So, um, that is uh, the, what is the state of vinyani? It is anadi, it's beginningless. It is ananta, it is endless, limitless, infinite. It is akanda, it is unbroken, undivided, indivisible sat chit ananda sat means pure being chit means pure awareness ananda means pure happiness so that is that's all that can be said of vinyani of a state of vinyani but even that we cannot adequately know it without knowing ourselves what is how how can our finite mind uh uh conceive or grasp that which is infinite if we if we want to know the infinite, we need to be swallowed by that, Khan, becoming food is seeing. So if we want to know the state of a jnani, we need to be swallowed by jnana, and then jnana alone will remain. And jnana is what is here described as anadi, ananta, akanda sachidananda, beginningless, endless, infinite, unbroken, indivisible, unfragmented, satchidananda. That's really all that can be said about the state of vinyani. Anything else that is said about the state of vinyani is from the perspective of the Agniani who takes Vijnani to be a person and therefore sees Vijnani seeing the world and react, uh, 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 behaving in the world just as we behave. So all that is, that's only in our ignorant view, Vinyani seems to be a person. What Vijnani actually is, is anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda. Because that alone is what actually exists. And that alone is what we actually are even now. So in order to know that, we need to know ourselves. And to know ourselves, we need to investigate who am I. So that is why Bhagavan's teaching from beginning to end, it is all whatever Bhagavan teaches us, it's all like like the... Like the spokes on a the wheel, they're all pointing back at the hub. The hub of Bhagavan's teachings is to know and to be what we actually are. In other words, to investigate who am I, and thereby to know and to be what we actually are. So, uh, Bhagavan's whole teachings are, uh, are, in Tamil it's composed of just two words, nan "I I-who. In other words, who am I? That is the whole of Bhagavan's teachings because I alone is real. So, in order to know what is real, we need to know ourselves. And when we know ourselves, what remains is only ourself, and what we are is anadi ananta sachit satchitananda. Om namo bhagavate sri chalaramanaya. Shalini, you said that was the last question, were there any more? Um. There, uh, there's
1: one more if you want if you're up to taking it, but okay. this is they yes. can ask it okay. next time. Okay, yeah? we can. okay. So it, it's uh, did Bhagwan say your own self-realization is the greatest service you can render the world? If so, what did he mean by this?
0: Yes, he did say like that. For people who want to serve the world, he said, "Know yourself." That's the greatest service you can do the world. So long as we rise as ego, the world appears. And so long as the world appears, the world is full of so many, um, so much suffering, so much strife, so much uh, wars and pandemics and famines and um, uh, disease, old age, accidents, so many things. If you, if you the world is full of um, of, of so many, uh, full of so many problems. All these problems appear only when we rise as ego. When we don't rise as ego in sleep, there are no problems at all. The only shortcoming with sleep is that we rise out of it again. We again rise as ego because... Sleep is a state of manalaya. It's a t- state of temporary dissolution of mind, not permanent dissolution of mind. But permanent dissolution of mind is manonasa. Manonasa is what is called self realization. That is, when the mind is eradicated, destroyed, annihilated completely, what remains is only ourself. Incidentally, this, this English term self-realization, this is not really a very appropriate term to use in Bhagavan teaching. And even Bhagavan, though he generally didn't he generally taught in Tamil or other South Indian languages, he very seldom spoke English, but he understood enough English. So about this English term self-realization, what Bhagavan said is how to realize oneself. We ourselves is what is always real. So, how to make what is real, real? The the problem is that we have realized the unreal. That is, this, this ego and mind and body and world, we take all these things to be real, though they're unreal. So, the problem is that we've realized the unreal. So, all we need to do is to unrealize the unreal, and the real alone will remain. So, the uh, self-realization is, not, re- is not, a, it's not such an appropriate term to use in Bhagavan's teaching, but the goal that Bhagavan taught us is annihilation of ego. If ego is annihilated, what remains is our self alone, and we are anadi, ananta, kanda, Ananda. So, since the world comes into existence only when we rise as ego, And since the world is full of problems, what is the greatest good we can do to the world? Not to rise as ego. When we don't rise as ego, there's no world, and therefore no problems. If you are dreaming... In a dream, so many things are happening, um but there's always potential in dream. I mean, not in every dream, but in most dreams there there will be we face problems or we see other people facing problems. So in a dream, there may be wars or there may be famines or there may be pandemics, or there may be we we may see old people dying or accidents and people are dying in accidents and everything. So if we see suffering in the dream world what is the greatest good we can do for the, for the suffering people in our dream world? Of course, if we're, we're dreaming that a person is hungry and comes and gives us food, of course we give them food, but that is only a temporary solution. That's not the real solution. If we want to put an end to all the suffering in the dream world, what must we do? all we need to do is to wake up from a dream because the dream world exists only in our own mind. Only when we, when we dream, the dream world seems to exist. So the greatest good we can do to this dream world, but now seems to us to be so real is to wake up from this dream by knowing what we actually are. That is, we wake not to wake up just from this dream to Put an end to the dreamer, because so long as the dreamer remains, one dream after another will be continuing. The dreamer is ego, so so long as we continue to rise, as ego will be, even when this body comes to an end, we'll dream another dream. That's another so-called life. Um, so this dreaming will not end until the dreamer is annihilated. To annihilate the dreamer is the is the goal that Bhagavan taught us. The, e- the dreamer is ego. And how do we annihilate ego? The, since ego is just a false awareness of ourself, it can only be destroyed by correct awareness of ourself. In other words, because so long as he raises ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, which is not what we actually are. In order to put an end to this, uh, to this false awareness, I am this body, we need to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. What we actually are is nothing other than I. I am I, as Bhagavan often said. So, in order to know ourselves as, our, as ourselves alone, we need to investigate ourselves and see ourselves as ourself alone. When we see ourselves as ourselves alone, ego is thereby annihilated. And when, since the world exists only in the view of ego, world is thereby annihilated, that is the greatest good we can do to the world. That is the deeper meaning of what Bhagavan said. There may be other explanations uh, for both, I mean, because Bhagavan generally said that to people who wanted to... Reform the world or whatever. So, those people may have taken that to mean that if I attain self realization, then I will be in a better position to do good to the world or whatever. Uh, or Bhagavan has also said, in, there's one verse in Guru in which Bhagavan said, the mere existence on the, of, of a jnani on, in the world is the greatest blessing. It's God's prasadam to the world. It's God's. Um, uh, your chistam, I think is the word he means, that the, the remains of the food of, of God has eaten, that is, but it's left behind. So the, the body of the jnani existing in this world is the greatest blessing for the world. But these are all when you're still assuming that the world actually exists. But if a deeper meaning of when Bhagavan said that but the greatest good you can do to the world is to know yourself, is that when you know yourself, the world will thereby cease to exist. As coming back to what I talked about at the beginning, um, in, um, in, in verse 3 of uh, Anmavide, as Bhagavan says, without knowing oneself, if one knows whatever else, so what? If one has known oneself, then what exists to know? So when we know ourselves, there is no world at all. And when the world doesn't exist, all the misery that is an inevitable part of the world also doesn't exist. So the, 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 in the very deepest sense, this is what Bhagavan means by saying that. Om namo bhagavate sri arna chala